0: we're on the second half of lesson 116 crosses and cups before crowns get yourself stationed at mark 10 parallel passage will be over in matthew chapter 20 and let's ask the lord's blessing on our time together here this morning father god we do thank you for a new day we thank you that you are a god who loves us and who sent your son to redeem us Thank you that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you, Father, for this facility, this beautiful facility that you have provided for us to assemble in, and we just pray your blessing upon this church. May it always be a beacon of light and truth to the community, and thank you for their vision here. I pray that you would continue to bring people into your kingdom through this ministry. Lord, we thank you for each and every lady who is here this morning, for her hunger, for your word, for her desire to to get to know you better. Thank you for the time of fellowship that we have already experienced with one another in our groups. Thank you that we can share our thoughts with one another and glean truths from each other and life experiences that help us as we each go through this walk together. And Lord, we thank you for the hope we have, the sure hope we have of of one day being eternally with you. If we have asked you to be our Lord and Savior, we thank you for the blessed hope we have that at any time you could come for us. And we would say even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we do pray, Jesus, that everything today would be to lift you up and to honor you. We pray in your name. Amen following the Lord's final and most detailed and seventh prediction of his soon-to-be-fulfilled sufferings and death by the cross, instead of next reading that even just one of his closest friends on earth, his disciples, that one of them offered him some words of compassion or some kind of encouragement, or even just said something like, Lord, we don't understand what you have just told us, all the things that you have to go through, that you must be delivered unto the chief priests, condemned to death, delivered unto the Gentiles, that you'll be mocked, scourged, spit upon and killed crucified we don't understand these things they just don't fit in the picture for us of everything we've ever been taught about the the messiah but it breaks our hearts to hear these things and is there anything we can do to possibly help you is there any anything we can do to to assist you in all this how can we minister to you do we read that No, instead of reading anything even similar to that in the gospel accounts, the very next thing that we read about concerns James and John who are accompanied by who their mother and they come privately, the three of them, to the Lord to ask him for the two special seats of honor in his kingdom. Can you imagine? That is the very next chronological thing that we read about. After he shared with them all that he would go through. And then we read further. This is what we'll be looking at this morning. That when the other ten disciples find out about this. Oh my there is a real ruckus that takes place. Which could have been a case of the flesh breaking up the apostolic circle. It could have been a disaster. If the Lord himself had not intervened. A week before his passion, a week before the cross, if the apostolic circle had broken up, it could have been awful. But the Lord, of course, did intervene. Now, the Lord had just addressed, as I mentioned, his upcoming cross. And the cross is one subject that really reveals the self-centeredness of men. Just think about it. The creator of the entire universe was willing to leave his perfect heavenly abode where from eternity past he had been worshipped by myriads and myriads of heavenly angels. And he was willing to leave that abode in order to take upon himself the likeness of men so that he could not only be misunderstood and rejected and despised and hated and betrayed and mocked and scourged and spit upon, but also crucified. What is that? And he knew all of that ahead of time. What is that? That is selflessness personified. That is sacrifice and humility personified. And when we measure ourselves against the Lord's sinless character and against the Lord's sacrificial cross, what do we find? We always, always come up short, far short. The contrast between his selfless humility and the selfish ambition of men and even godly men, which is what we're going to look at this morning. James and John, they were godly men. Don't we don't we put them up on a pedestal? But the difference between the Lord's selfless humility and the selfish ambition of even godly men is probably nowhere so clearly seen as it is in this episode before us today in the second half of our lesson entitled Crosses and Cups Before Crowns. I could have entitled it Crosses and Cups Before Crowns and Thrones, but the thrones didn't match with all the Cs, so I just left it out. But we're going to be finishing up the outline which we began last time. Last time we discussed part one, the suffering announcement. And today we're going to discuss the selfish ambition and the servanthood attitude. Now we find that Luke, the third synoptic gospel writer, we've been looking a lot lately at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of things, but Luke here we find does not record this incident that occurred with James and John. And perhaps that was because he wanted to spare them the embarrassment (laughs) so he just did not record this in his gospel account but um, interestingly Matthew and Mark did which I thought was interesting because that again is another proof that the scripture is divinely inspired because Matthew was involved in this little ruckus and you would think that if you were writing a book you wouldn't include things where you had made a big boo-boo and you had showed how self-centered you were you might be tempted to leave that out wouldn't you And Mark's account is really the account of Peter, and he too was involved in this. But, you know, their writings were divinely inspired, and the Holy Spirit, God, wanted us to know about this little incident so that we could learn from it. So we'll be looking at uh, Matthew and Mark. Now, Mark will be our primary source of information, but we will also look over to see what Matthew has to add. So I want to begin by reading what Mark tells us about the selfish ambition of these two men and their mother, really. So let's look um, at verse 35, starting at verse 35. I'm going to read through 41. Remember now, this is immediately what follows the Lord's seventh and final announcement of all that he will endure it says and James and John the sons of Zebedee come unto him saying master we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire wow and he said unto them what would ye that I should do for you they said unto him grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, they began to be much displeased with James and John. I'll we'll stop right there. Okay, this account, which is paralleled over in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, which, by the way, is where we learn, it is from Matthew that we learn that James and John were accompanied by their mother, who at first acted at the, as the spokesperson well, this account again demonstrates to us the failure of the disciples, even the inner circle disciples who were the inner circle disciples, Peter, James and John. So this again demonstrates to us the failure of the disciples to comprehend the significance of the Lord's death forecast. They were aware of that there was going to be some kind of a confrontation when they all arrived in jerusalem you know they're right now on their way to jerusalem and they're getting closer and closer with each passing lesson next week we'll see they're only one day away from jerusalem but they were aware that when they got there there would be some kind of a confrontation with the religious rulers but the only crisis that they really could think of was some kind of a short-lived battle That would be followed by the establishment of the messianic kingdom headquartered right there in the holy city. All of their deep rooted expectations of the Lord soon unveiling his messianic rule apparently blocked out their willingness to even think about the natural meaning of his words of suffering and death. And we talked about this to some extent last week. Why didn't they hear what he said? you know the words the words were there why didn't they get it well we discussed the fact that some of it was fear and some of it was just willful ignorance and they didn't want to ask him anymore they didn't want to learn anymore it was also because it was so contrary to what they had in mind you know they didn't savor god's way they savored their way of things and it was just too inconceivable for them to think about um so so they just, it blocked their penetration They really did not understand what he was saying And so they thought when they got there There'd be some little, little battle But it would be short-lived And he would set up his kingdom Now if you remember back to some of our earlier lessons Those of you who were with us And even those of you who were not with us I know most of you know this But James and John were the sons Of a rather wealthy Galilean fisherman By the name of Zebedee And uh, I remember once, I always have to share this, but when we were, our children were little and we were playing a Bible trivia game, my son got the question, what was the name of uh, the father, who was the father of James and John? And he just went like this. He said, Thunder. (laughs) I thought that was so clever. They were sons of Thunder. (laughs) And he was serious. But the father's real name was Zebedee. And James and John had been two of the very first four disciples to join Jesus. This is back in John chapter 1. Originally, they had been disciples of who? John the Baptist. So they were godly men. They were listening to John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God. And when John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, you know, Behold the Lamb of God, what did James and John do, along with Peter and Andrew? They followed, they switched over and they followed the one who was the lamb of God, the Messiah. And they had been the only disciples, not only had they been among the first disciples, but they had been the only disciples along with Peter who were allowed into the house by the Lord when he raised Jairus's 12 year old daughter from the dead. That's why we call them the inner circle disciples. He privileged them more than the others by allowing them to come into the house and see that miracle take place. And then they were the only three who were chosen by the Lord to accompany him where? Up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you see the two brothers, James and John, must have thought that there was a good chance. That they might that he might grant their request for the honored kingdom seats on his left and right after all he had just given them the promise remember this was in matthew 19 somewhere that he, that they would sit on 12 thrones when he came into his kingdom they would sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of israel so it wasn't like they were asking for too much more than he had already promised You know, they picture him in the middle, six thrones on this side, six thrones on that side. Well, we've already been promised we're going to be on one of those thrones. So what's the big deal if we just want to be next to him on his right and on his left? Um, Besides, not only were they among the first disciples and some of the, you know, along with Peter, the inner circle disciples, but guess what else? They were also his cousins, his first cousins. You see, their mother and his mother, Jesus's mother, were sisters. I won't t- take the time to show you this, but if you piece together Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, Mark fifteen forty, and John nineteen twenty-five, you will find out that Zebedee's wife's name was Salome. What do you get when you mix baloney and salami? Salome. (laughs) Uh, This is what happens after I visit my grandchildren. (laughs) This is how I tell them Bible stories, (laughs) but they remember. (laughs) All right, Salome, Um, and Salome was also you pick you get this when you read those three verses. She was Mary's sister, so this means that they were first cousins. All right, Jesus and James and John were first cousins. and it made perfect sense to these two sons of thunder therefore to get the best seats in the house now remember do you remember why they're called the sons of thunder that was the Lord's nickname for them yes they wanted they wanted him to call down fire from heaven in order to make crispy critters out of all the residents of a certain Samaritan village we don't know the name of the village but that village had refused to let Jesus lodge there for the night can you imagine that Just think about how much these two men changed. What the Lord can do with a life. Just changed it dramatically. John, we think of John as the apostle of love. And yet he wanted to call down fire, burn. Children, babies, moms, old people, everybody in the town called on fire and burned them up. That's why he called them sons of thunder. But uh, now their their mother, Salome, along with... You say, why was she? What was she doing there? Well, she, along with the Lord's own mother, Mary, and also Mary, the mother of James, the less and Joseph. That was two more brothers. Their mother, also Mary <laughs> and Mary Magdalene. Mary, there's so many Marys <laughs> looking at this Mary. With so many Marys. No wonder people get confused. Uh, so there was Mary. Mary the mother James the lesson and Joseph and Mary Magdalene and you have Salome and uh, we know from Luke 8 that um, and also at the end of the passion we find out that Joanna and Susanna are there in this great multitude of Passover pilgrims that are with the Lord as he is on his way to Jerusalem and what are these women doing they're ministering to the Lord and to his men. See, they understood a lot more about ministering. They weren't asking for the thrones. They were ministering. <laughs> Women, I think, are just more ingrained to minister than men. But we'll get to that at the end of the lesson. But, I, you know, we always talk about the Lord's 12 male disciples. But he had female disciples as well. And I got to wondering, I wonder how many he had. Maybe he had 12, too. And I thought, well, let's count them. Okay, we've got his mother, Mary. We've got Mary, the, the mother of those two boys I talked about, James, the less and Joseph. And we've got um, Salome, Mary's sister. And you've got Mary Magdalene. And you've got Joanna and Susanna. And then you've got Martha and Mary of Bethany, who were definitely his disciples. Uh, so I need four more. Okay, who could have been the other four? Hmm well the Lord had two sisters they were probably with Mary in that we know he had at least two sisters he may have had more but the the word is plural so at least two we could add them I don't know if they believed in him yet or not but um let's say we don't even count them who else might have been one of his disciples following along well how about that woman who had wiped off his the woman who had been like a prostitute and wiped his feet with her tears in her hair she was an outcast anyway and loved him so much she probably followed along as a disciple let's count her okay and what about the woman with an issue of blood for 12 long years and touched the hem of his garment she had been an outcast of society because you weren't allowed to touch a woman who had been bleeding so she may have followed along with him and then I thought well um Uh, We could also have the Samaritan woman at the well. She had been an outcast and you could have had the Syrophoenician woman, the only woman who Jesus said had great faith. That would make 12, but maybe two of those were wrong. So maybe you supply the two sisters or maybe he had more than 12 female disciples. I think he did. But anyway, he had female and male disciples. And there, a lot of these women are with him on his way into uh, when he comes into Jerusalem. All right, so since their mother was Jesus's maternal aunt, the two brothers thought that it might be even more to their advantage if, you know, to get these two seats, if uh, they got her to make the request for them. Now, think about this. We do not know how old these guys were at this time. But uh, we do know that John lived to be in his 90s. He lived to the end of the first century so that means that he had to either be in his late teens or early twenties at this time he was the younger of the two brothers so let's say james was somewhere in his twenties these aren't really older guys you know so it you can kind of that helps you picture them calling their mother along with them but uh, how could jesus possibly this is their thing how could he possibly turn down a request from his dear Auntie Salome, you know, if she comes to them. And by the way, she was a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. And I got to thinking about Auntie Salome. Okay, she grew up in the same home as Mary, the mother of jesus mary we know even as a young teenage girl was a godly girl wasn't she a godly woman so i imagine that salome was too they were jews who looked forward to the coming of the messiah they were godly people and don't you know how sisters are when don't you think that mary told her sister salome who was probably a younger sister since her boys were younger than jesus um, look Salome, I promise you I did not have a physical relationship with Joseph. Please believe me, I really don't you think Salome would have believed her? And don't you think that Salome noticed how perfect Jesus was compared to her boys? The sons of thunder. <laughs> and so, you know, Salome was a believer. And we know this because she comes to him. Anyway, I'll, I'll talk more about this. We know she is a believer. Now, it would seem most likely, and I don't know this for sure, that James and John went to their mother with this little idea of of theirs. They were the ones who had received the promise just short shortly ago about sitting on 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. She didn't hear that promise. So don't you know that they would have gone to their mother and said... Do you know what Jesus just promised us, Mother? He promised us that we'd get to sit on 12 thrones when he reigns over his kingdom. And um, don't you think that they asked her to join them in going to Jesus and saying, well, since we're your inner circle and since we're related to you, could, could they have the seats on your right and left hand? Now, either it was their idea. Now, that would be my, my probably choice their idea and they went to her or maybe it was her idea maybe they told her that he had made that promise about the thrones and she said well let's capitalize on our on our on our relationship and let's go ask him for the thrones. But either way, no matter how it happened, they all three agreed. They discussed ahead of time, and they agreed on the plan together beforehand, and they were hoping to capitalize on their family relationship. And the mother was just as guilty as her son's because even though she didn't ask for a throne for herself, don't you know that it would be to her great honor For her sons to sit in those positions of uh, prominence. Don't you know that she would bask in the glory of the fact that it was her boy sitting on his right and left hand. If you're a mother of a son or even a daughter, you know what we're speaking of. You know, be, she'd be so proud that she would be like she'd rather have them on the throne than be on the throne herself. And many parents just like her, unfortunately, have caused problems. This did cause a problem. Many parents have caused problems by trying to manipulate things and to push and shove and pull strings in order to get their children into places of high position. Have they not? Just think about some dads and how they push and shove and manipulate to try to get their sons, you know, in in sports and, and to be the the little league mess that sometimes goes on where the where the father is living through his children and and just why don't you just be quiet dad and sit down <laughs> even if he strikes out you know you encourage him parents should be much more much more focused and concentrated on developing high character and integrity in their children and sometimes you do that by learning to be a good loser right than they should be in, in trying to push and shove and get their children in positions, high positions. It's more important to have character than position. Well, from Matthew's account, and this is over in Matthew 20:20, we find that it was Salome who did the initial talking for her sons. It says in Matthew 20:20, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, I want you to notice the words about worshiping him because they not only tell us that the three, the mother and her two sons, were all genuine believers. They're worshiping him. Well, one thing, of course, they're, they're genuine believers or they wouldn't even be going to him to ask for, for seats on his right and left hand if they didn't believe he was the Messiah and they didn't believe in his word and his power and in his coming kingdom, right? Right. Their request shows that they're true believers, but uh, it also shows, you know, that they're true believers by the fact that they're worshiping him. And the words worshiping him, which uh, in the Greek literally means falling down before him, indicate to us that they went down on their knees before him. I don't know if they fell totally before him on their faces, but it does indicate that they're at least down in front of him on their knees. And I'm not going to develop this right now, but later I want to come back to this and point out why this would be important, that they're down on their knees before him. Well, from Mark 10.35, you can go back to Mark now if you're in Matthew. Mark 10.35, we find that the first request that these three made was in effect asking the Lord for a blank check. Can you imagine this? They wanted him to make a commitment to, him, to them, a pledge that would bind him to their request in advance. Whatever their request would be. They said, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Wow, that's pretty bold, isn't it? <laughs> that's pretty brazen. They definitely believed he had power, that he could do whatever they asked. He, you know, what, what might they ask? They could have asked anything, you know, just give us a blank check. I had a daughter like this when she was a teenager, my oldest daughter, Casey. She used to come to me, she was about 14 or 15, she thought this was really clever. She came to me and she'd say, Mom, okay, whatever I ask ne- next, you say yes, okay? Okay, whatever I ask next, you say yes. i said, well, wait a minute, I don't think I'm that dumb, Casey. <laughs> but that's what they're doing here. We want you to say yes to whatever we ask next. That's what they're saying. Amazing. Well, of course, Jesus already knew being omniscient. He knew what was in their hearts, but he asked them nonetheless in verse 36. What would ye that I should do for you? He was going to use all of this as he did with everything. He was going to use all of this for another teaching session, which they wouldn't completely get. These guys are slow, and I know they wouldn't completely get. It. He's going to go on to teach them. You know, there's a big ruckus that follows this, and um, then he gets all his disciples together and gives them a big another teaching on servanthood, having the servanthood attitude. But they don't get it, and you know how I know they don't get it because in a week's time, when they're in the upper room, what are they doing? Right, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest and not one of them would humili- uh, be humble enough to get down and wash the other's feet so he get, again gives them another lesson on having the servanthood attitude by getting down and washing all of their feet. But, so I know they don't get this lesson today. They would later on. But he asks them to state their desire openly perhaps by verbalizing their own request for the first seats, the first seats, maybe it would dawn on them, oh, wait a minute, Jesus has just taught us a lesson about the first being last. Maybe this isn't such a good idea to ask for the first seats. If we ask for the first, maybe we'll be the last. Maybe we'll get the sixth seat down at the end. Um, And apparently... I don't know, you know, maybe that's, maybe he was hoping that that would dawn on them. But apparently, Salome's answer came first. She said, before they answered, you know, what is it you want? She said, Grant, here's what we want Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. Don't you think it might've been better if Salome had asked that question like this? Grant that these thy two faithful servants. We know that she wants to bask in the glory of her sons being on those thrones by the fact that she says, grant that these my two sons. See, she's really revealing her own heart there, isn't she? And so she asked the question first. Now we we have to try to synchronize how Matthew and Mark fit together. Because over in, um, in um, Math, that's Matthew's account where she speaks first. So perhaps now, because Mark shows us James and John answering the question, perhaps after she said that, the Lord looked at James and John to see if they seconded their mother's request. And they obviously did, because in Mark's account, they say to us, grant unto us, that we may sit one on thy right hand and thy, and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now, I thought it was interesting when I compared her request to their request because she asked for the seats when he came into his kingdom and they asked for the seats when he came into his glory. You see, one thing they never, ever forgot was that unveiled glory of christ that they had seen up there on the mount of transfiguration how could you forget that so they said when you come into your glory it's interesting the only other one who saw that unveiled glory was who peter and if you remember peter had wanted to bask in that glory by forever he would just be content to sit up there on the mount of transfiguration and bask in that glory by you know, build it let's build a booth and just sit up here and, and just be in this glory forever. This was so wonderful. And here now they're wanting to bask in that glory by sitting on thrones next to him forever. Interesting. But it's good. They never did forget his unveiled glory. Well the poor Lord. Can you imagine what a patient teacher he was? Oh what a patient Lord we have. His whole parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The lesson that he had taught on the last being first had not apparently penetrated his men even his closest men one single bit or maybe it did (laughs) maybe who knows how these guys were thinking but maybe James and John knowing that they had been among the first of the Lord's disciples felt like they were going to be doomed to be the last You know, because they had been two out of the first four. Uh Uh-oh, we were the first ones to follow him. Maybe we're going to be the last. You know, he just taught that parable by the first. Maybe we will have to get those six seats. I'd be happy to get that sixth seat, wouldn't you? (laughs) I'd be happy to get the 3,000th seat from the Lord. But so maybe they thought they were doomed. I don't know. That's just speculation. But another thing that is so sad, as I mentioned earlier, is that we don't hear any words of comfort from these men to him. Wouldn't it have been so, so much better for them if James and John had gone to their mother to share with her what Jesus had just said about his upcoming suffering and his death? and that together the three of them had then gone to him to ask what they possibly could do to help him? What if they had asked to be on his right hand and on his left hand as he went into Jerusalem so that they could act as his bodyguards to protect him from being delivered into the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles, etc.? Wouldn't that have been a much greater request for them, it, it wouldn't have changed anything, we know, because he still had to be betrayed and he still had to be arrested and he still had to be crucified. But wouldn't that be better for them, you know, that we read that in the scripture instead of this? Well, and their request, when you get to thinking about this request, my goodness, it is really something. Uh, because they were asking, where was Moses going to sit? Did they stop to think about They were asking for seats of honor even above Moses' Oh, I don't know. Moses will be out there. What? And Abraham, where was Abraham going to sit? Father Abraham. And what about King David? Oh, he can have, he can have the seventh seat, you know. Or, Or John the Baptist, of whom they had heard the Lord say that among those born of women, there had been none greater. You think you start thinking about all th- what they're asking; it's pretty incredible. Furthermore, since they had already disputed with the other disciples back in Mark 9:34, you can look at that. Um, they'd already disputed about who among them was the greatest, and this was following the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Because of that, you see, James and John knew, they very well knew that all the other disciples were also ambitious for those positions of honor. So this was sort of a beat them to the punch kind of a thing here. It was not healthy ambition. Now there is healthy ambition, rightly motivated ambition, but this was not that. And, And that's proven by their sneakiness here to go to Jesus when the other 10 were not present it's also evidenced by the fact that they take their mother along with them so as to sort of play on the Lord's own love for his own mother and it's evidenced by their little ploy to get him to commit to whatsoever they desire you know, an unlimited appeal, a blank check. Um, So all indications tell us very clearly that their motive was not one of pure hearts wanting to selflessly serve the Lord and their fellow man. We want to sit on your right hand and your left hand, Lord, so we can serve you better. We can be closer to you so, you know, when when you're thirsty, we can get you a drink right away or that we can serve our fellow man better. That wasn't their motive at all. But having said that, we do have to mention that they were displaying genuine belief in Christ, weren't they? They definitely were displaying genuine belief in him. They believed in his promises. They believed in his kingdom and they believed in his power. They definitely believed in his power. Like my daughter, she believed I had power, but she was trying to manipulate that power, wasn't she? And that's what they're doing. They're trying trying to manipulate his power. And they definitely wanted honored thrones because they wanted to be next to him. They, they dearly loved him and they wanted to be as close to him as they could. But unfortunately, they also wanted the prestige and the uh, preeminence that they figured would come along with those particular thrones. And in this, they were little better than the Pharisees and the scribes who loved to take the places of honor at banquets and who thrived on sitting in the chief seats in the synagogue facing the people so that they could be the big mucky mucks that everyone looked up to. Really, think about it. James and John are not much better in their motive than the scribes and Pharisees here. Now, one more thing I want to mention before we move on, um, and that has to do with Peter. Do, Do you remember, you all do, Peter's great confession of faith? Back in Matthew sixteen sixteen, when he said uh, the Lord had asked, who do who do others say that I am? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some think you're Elijah, whatever. And then he said, but who do ye think? Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, the spokesman, spoke up and he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus then responded, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, think about that. If, as some erroneously teach, if Jesus was stating there that he was going to build his church upon Peter, you know, Peter being the first pope, And it would be upon Peter that the church would be built rather than saying that he was going to build his church on the truth that Peter had just declared, which was that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. If that had been the case, then the disciples would have known that Peter was surely to have the right hand seat of honor in the kingdom. So if that's true, if that if Jesus was saying that he's going to build his church upon Peter, then why are there three places in the scripture where we find the apostles bickering about who among them was to be the greatest? And all three of those bickering sessions occur after Jesus had made that declaration to Peter. You see, if the disciples, you know, they didn't understand that to mean that Peter was going to be the one he built the church on. They understood that he was saying it would be on the truth. Peter had declared that he would build his church because if they had understood otherwise, they would they would know that Peter was going to get at least the right hand seat. And if that was the case, why wouldn't Jesus here, at least in this situation, have said to James and John, Look, I'm sorry, guys, but you remember, I've already made it perfectly clear that Peter is the greatest. So this whole scene, you know, maybe they could have bickered about the left hand seat, but the right hand seat would have already they would have understood or the Lord would have made it clear where the right hand seat who who was going to sit there. So this scene, you see, confirms in just one more way that the Lord's words in Matthew 16 about um we're not about peter being the rock you know the lord was doing a play on words you know peter you're a stone but upon this rock that you have just stated i'm going to build my church and we talked about that back in that lesson i think it was called upon this rock if you don't if you want to get more information about that well anyway these three salome james and john <clears throat> did not understand that it costs it costs something to wear a crown and it costs something to sit on a kingdom throne they did not yet realize that crosses and cups precede crowns and thrones now they would learn that truth they would learn it the hard way but they did not know it at this time and they surely surely did not understand the extent of that which they were asking and this is exactly what he told them in verse 38 when he said, "Ye know, not what ye ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now we have to come to the point where we ask ourselves, well, what did the Lord mean exactly by drinking the cup and being baptized with a baptism? Well, let's talk about the cup first. There were two things that a cup symbolized in the old Testament. Sometimes a cup was a symbol of joy. And everybody's mind races to Psalm 23, where it says, My cup runneth over. There, the cup is symbolic of joy. Elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures, a cup was used as a symbol of suffering and um, retribution. Now, and that's, for example, in Psalm 75, 8, and in Isaiah 51, verses 17 to 23, and there's other places as well. But in this context here, we know he's definitely speaking of his suffering. He had just talked about his suffering. As he would again over in John eighteen eleven when he would say, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And then we all remember his famous mention of the cup when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he says, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's not speaking about a cup of joy. speaking about a cup of suffering there now the lord used this metaphor of drinking the cup to speak of all that he was to bear in the way of god's wrath and judgment against sin to drink of the cup would be anything but pleasant but he would drink it he would drink the full measure of it he would drink it right down to the bitter dregs. And actually it's interesting because the the verb tense he uses here when he says um, that I drink of in verse thirty-eight is given in the present tense, which means he's already started drinking the cup. He has already started drinking it. I imagine he started drinking it when he was born. Well, the, the Lord's second part of his question to James and John really restates the cup question. Except he uses a different, a different metaphor. He speaks of baptism and the Greek verb for baptism is baptizal. And it means to immerse. And it was commonly used in a metaphorical sense of being immersed or overwhelmed or flooded over. With calamities, being immersed in the rapids of affliction and rejection and abuse and ridicule and opposition and persecution and even martyrdom, just read about Job. In Job 22:11, he was ba- boy. If anyone was baptized with troubles, who was it? Besides the Lord, poor Job. He was really he was overwhelmed and flooded over with calamities. So the Lord um, used this metaphor. He had used the same metaphor back, if you remember, in Luke twelve fifty, when he had said, "I have a, baptize, a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straitened till it be accomplished." He was, you know, he was anxious and eager, as we saw last week, with his flint-like walk toward Jerusalem. He was anxious to get it accomplished, and behind him. And he was speaking of the baptism of the cross that was uh, prophesied in Psalm 69, 2. Now, even the Jews understood that Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. In other words, it was about the Messiah. And here's what it says. These are the Lord's own thoughts while he's on the cross, revealed to us all the way back by the psalmist. Psalm 69, 2. Jesus on the cross is saying, I sink in deep mire... Where there is no standing, I am come into deep waters where floods overflow me. That speaks of his baptism on the cross. The cup, you see, refers to more to what one takes within himself. And you know, you drink it down, it's what you're taking into yourself, what you're internalizing, what you're bearing within yourself. And you see, he willingly became sin he, for us, he willingly drank down the cup for us. And whereas, um, and that refers to all of his inner suffering and his inward agony, whereas the baptism is more what is put upon one from the outside. It is more of the external suffering. It's what God had to put on him in judgment, you know, that he became sin for us and God's wrath had to be poured, poured on him. Now, did he do both? Yes. He willingly partook of sin for us and then he willingly endured the baptism, the wrath of God for us on the outside. Did he suffer internally and externally? Yes. So you get the, the picture here of what he's saying? And then, of course, showing that they did not understand at all the extent of the cup and the baptism that he was speaking of. James and John <laughs> immediately respond to his questions by saying, we can, yes, we can drink the cup you drink of. We can be baptized with the baptism you're going to be baptized with. Yes, no problem. Over in Matthew, it says, we are able, now to their credit, I do believe that their ready assertion here of their ability means that they were willing to suffer and sacrifice for him. It means that their, that their bond of loyalty was strong to him, but they spoke, as we know, in rash confidence, not understanding at all the cost. They didn't know their own hearts. None of us really know our own hearts, do we? they're deceitful above all things desperately wicked they didn't even understand their own hearts as was evidenced by the pride in their request to begin with to have those seats of honor and now they evidence that neither did they know the nature of the path before them before him and or before them and they had no concept at all of the extent the depth of both the cup and the baptism he would endure for them before he would ever sit upon his rightful throne and wear his royal crown they coveted positions but were wholly ignorant of the price of those positions yet in their self-confident ambition they accepted the challenge to drink the lord's cup and be baptized with his baptism they were saying in effect what you can do lord we can do they were, that's what they were saying we can do it if you can do it we can do it and they regarded his questions to them really as a test of their moral courage and they you know they ruffled their feathers and said oh yes we're brave enough we can do it and they did not at all realize the spiritual power that would be needed to drink the cup and be baptized um, they didn't understand that at that moment and at that moment they wouldn't have been ready to drink the cup and be baptized with a baptism as he was because they didn't have at this point the spiritual power needed to go through such things but they would one day they didn't have that power at this point in time but they would one day and jesus knew that they would one day and that's why he goes on to give a prophecy And the next words he says to them are a prophecy that james and john would indeed both suffer greatly for their identity with him he says ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that i am baptized with and salome too i think is included in this and we'll talk about it remind me if i forget to mention what she went through later on but for now the two sons of zebedee and salome were like peter who would proudly in in about a week from this point Peter would very proudly boast to the Lord. The Lord would say, when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep will scatter. And when Peter hears that, what does he do? Sticks out his chest and he says, Though all the rest of these guys, Lord, might flee from you, yet not. I will not. I will stick with you through thick and thin. And yet before the cock crew three times the next morning, what had he done? denied the Lord three times so James and John here like Peter boast here of their abilities to stand with the Lord in in battle but along with Peter they are, they're going to fall asleep in the garden of Gethsemane even after the Lord specifically asked them on two to, at two times to please stay awake guys watch and pray with me and when he comes back what does he see them doing Third time, he just let them sleep, <laughs> but they fell asleep. So they're not spiritually ready yet. And then, of course, when they see him arrested in the garden, what do they do? They flee for their very lives. That's Matthew twenty-six fifty-six. <clears throat> but all of this would occur before the Lord's resurrection. This would. Aren't you glad that we don't have somebody scrutinizing our before lives? Boy, I sure am. I wouldn't want anybody to see what I was like before (laughs) I understood about the Lord and his death and his burial and his resurrection. But this would occur before young John outran Peter, older Peter, and looked into the empty tomb. And what happened when John looked into that empty tomb? He saw the way the grave clothes were lying there and the napkin folded, and he instantly, he believed. He believed. And this was before Christ appeared to all his men in his resurrected, glorified body and explained the Old Testament scriptures to them, those having to do with his first coming, suffering, and death. As we looked at at the end of last week's lesson in in Luke 24. And this was before they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and went forth with the zeal to preach Christ and him resurrected to everyone they came into contact with so they changed they changed big time but james and john would indeed as the lord had forecasted here they would they would drink of his cup and they would be baptized with the, his baptism because james would after the holy spirit filled him he would be so on fire for christ talk about a son of thunder son of lightning that he literally became uh, the number one enemy of the Jews because he became the leader of the Christians there at Jerusalem. And because he was the number one enemy of the Jews, they had dispensed with Jesus. Now they were after James. They needed to hush him up, so he was the first apostle to be martyred. Acts 12, verses 1 to 3 tells us that Herod Agrippa I had James slain with a sword, which speaks of beheading. He had his head removed from his body, and that was a way to further disgrace a Jewish person, was to behead them. And it actually says that they did this in order to vex the church And please the Jews, or I should say Herod. Herod did this to vex the church and please the Jews. See, it pleased the Jews, meaning the Jewish religious leaders, to have James beheaded because it not only silenced him, but it it was supposed to disgrace him. So he was the first apostle to be martyred. And then, interestingly, John, the younger of the two brothers, was the last of the apostles to die. He did not die a martyr's death as such, but he certainly suffered. Imagine the suffering that he went through as the only one of the apostles to stand there at the foot of the cross and see all that the Lord Jesus went through. And he suffered through living through all the other apostles' deaths. He he was, you know, I don't know if he witnessed his brothers beheading, but he certainly suffered when he heard news of it. And he, you know, all his friends, he lived through all his friends dying, martyrs death, deaths. And we know that he suffered banishment and exile to the Isle of Patmos because it was from there that he wrote the book of Revelation in which he called himself a companion in tribulation. And um, so even though James was the first apostle to to be martyred, he drank the cup of martyrdom, yet we could say that John, although he escaped physical martyrdom, he was a living martyr. He was a living martyr for the Lord. Yes, they would indeed, both of them, they would share the cup and the baptism. And so would Salome, their mother. Thank you for reminding me. Salome would share in a baptism and suffering too because she was there at the foot of the cross with her sister Mary. And, you know, remember Simeon had predicted to Mary that her heart would be pierced through. Don't you know that that also pierced through the heart of his auntie Salome to see not only her sister Mary suffer like that and her nephew to suffer, but it also must have pierced her heart. And then what about the suffering when when jesus gave her own son john to her sister that would hurt there'd be a certain amount of agony there and then to have her oldest son martyred just when he's on fire and just getting started in his ministry to have him beheaded and then to see all her younger son i don't know how long she lived but surely she saw a lot of suffering that her own younger son went through so she was not spared the cup and the baptism but I want you to understand one thing very, very clearly here. If you understand nothing else, understand this. Their sufferings were not anything comparable to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ because th- they would not have any redemptive nature in their sufferings as his would. There can never be a comparison in what they or any Christian suffers for Christ's name's sake and what he endured in becoming literally the curse of sin for us and bearing God's wrath for that sin. Now, there was no redemptive quality in their deaths. What is, was there at all? They were sinners who needed to be saved he he became sin for us and um and they weren't separate you know he had to be separated I think that was the greatest part of his agony on the cross was the fact that he had to be separated from his father for those last three of his six hours on the cross he was separated from his father the first time in eternity past first time and only time into all eternity future that he was separated from his father and um and that was pure agony that's when he said oh my god my god you know why hast thou forsaken me but when when james was down waiting for his head to be beheaded was he alone did god turn his back on james no when john was alone on the isle of patmos was he alone suffering no he even was visited by the resurrected lord jesus christ but they weren't alone because they had the promise lo i am with you all way even unto the end of the world so they were not alone there was no way no way we can compare any of our sufferings to what the lord jesus went through on the cross well continuing in his response to james and john the lord jesus told them that as far as the places of honor on his right and his left hand were concerned those were not his to give that's in verse 40 They had asked for those positions to be given them as a personal favor, but he does not bestow favors according to his own whims and preferences, favoritism. You know, he doesn't give positions to those who have donated to his political campaign. (laughs) He is no respecter of persons, you know, regardless of the fact that they were his cousins. That didn't mean they got the best seats in the house. Remember how he pointed to others and said, behold, my brother and my sister and my brethren. You know, he was no respecter of persons just because they were blood related to his mother. He said, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. You see, positions in the kingdom are for those who are spiritually prepared for them positions in the kingdom are for those who are morally qualified for them crowns and thrones are paid for by one's life they are not prayed for with one's lips the big difference you don't just say oh give me a throne give me a crown Mm -mm, that doesn't work that way you pay for it with your life you don't pray for it with your lips We must identify with Christ in his service and in his suffering and in obedience if we want places of honor with him. Because even he, the Lord Jesus himself, in his humanity, did not reach the right hand of God the Father, except by what? By way of the cross, and by way of the cup, and by way of the crown of thorns and by way of the baptism of intense suffering if he didn't even reach the the throne except by way of that is the is the servant greater than the master of course not well me oh my what do you think happened next sure enough selfishness and personal ambition will always result in division and dissension You can count on it. Just go out there in the world. You can count it. It's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened here. The other ten disciples found out what James and John had done. And I don't know how they found out. How do you think? I don't think James and John went running to tell them. Do you? No, I don't think James and John were too proud of this. But uh, I got to thinking, well, you know how women are. (laughs) Maybe Salome told one of her friends who told one of her friends who told Mary, the mother of James less and Joseph. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it was via that way, but I doubt it. I would think Salome might be quiet about this, too. But here's the best way I think they may have found out. Remember that word worshiping we talked about? That they went before him and they actually went down on their knees before him to make their request well what if off in a distance one of the other ten saw that or maybe all ten or but at least one of them saw that now they wouldn't have heard the conversation that took place between salome Mary, uh, james and john and jesus but it would have been a very unusual sight to see the three of them down on their knees in front of jesus Why would that be unusual? Well, because of their daily association with him. They were with Jesus every day for years, you know, and they didn't, you know, so they weren't constantly, they weren't getting down on their knees before them. And then they would have seen the conversation. So perhaps they saw that and they got suspicious that they were asking for something. What were they asking? What was that all about? And perhaps they just uh, kept cross-examining James and John or maybe Salome until they finally found out I don't know but we do know that eventually the truth came out regardless of how they found out and when they found out oh my oh my they were hot to trot they were absolutely indignant you don't see it so much in our English but in the Greek I won't go through that but in the Greek the words are intense they were upset anger was roused tempers flared and arguments became very inflamed what right did these two have to do such a thing? Why did they deserve a higher position than all the rest of them? Now, <laughs> the Sons of Thunder had indeed succeeded in starting a very dangerous storm here. They were rightly named Sons of Thunder because here was a very critical storm that could have been very potentially dangerous. Pride And their own selfish ambition and bitterness and jealousy and self-centeredness bred within the hearts of the 10 against the two. And it was not at all a good scene. And if scripture wasn't divinely inspired by God, none of this would have been included. If these guys were just, it was just up to them to write this because this was not at all good. This shows again, they were just acting like a bunch of children, weren't they? But the band of apostles was threatened here, and Satan would have been having a heyday. Just think, they're only a week away from the cross. If the if the apostle apostleship had broken up, it could have been very fatal to Christianity. The work, the very work of the Lord Himself, was at stake here. But Jesus, of course, stepped in to stop the fighting just think about him he had just shared what he's going to go through and now here he has to stop an argument among his men it's incredible and we find really that the reaction of the ten was no better than the selfish ambition of the two all of them every single one of them would have readily accepted the positions the two brothers had the audacity to ask for themselves but they resented, the 10 resented the unfair way that James and John had tried to get a jumpstart to gain those positions. One commentator wrote this, he said, quote, they betrayed their own spiritual shallowness by being indignant at the spiritual shallowness of the two, (laughs) end of quote. So in the final verses of this lesson, the Lord, who is the wise physician, took all 12 of his men aside to supply a correct medicine. And he teaches them here in this last section that their ideas about greatness are built on the wrong foundation. They're just thinking about greatness the way the world thinks about greatness. Um, So he really repeats here with added emphasis what he had been trying to teach them through the episode of the rich young ruler and the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Except he uses this time words like this. He says, whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. In other words, if you want to be first, you'll be last. And he then backs up his words with the overwhelming example of his own life when he says, even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So the greatest in God's eyes is the servant. Let's look at that in um, Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. This is the servanthood attitude. It says in verse 42, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them. Now this is all 12 of them. He says, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister. The That's the word we get deacon from. Server, minister. Verse 44. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And that word is dulos, which means slave, bond slave. If you want to be if you want to be great you're a server a deaconos but if you want to be chiefest among the great you're a bond slave, a doulos and then he says for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many right there he gives them the reason for all of the suffering he had just predicted to them why am I going to suffer and be condemned and crucified and rise again on the third day Because I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. All right. The Lord began by telling his men something they already knew. He said, "Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. The Jewish disciples understood the way greatness operated in the Gentile world. And, you know, this would speak of all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, aside from Israel and the Jews. But I got to thinking about, you know, Israel was not supposed to be established the way the world was established with the great ones exercising authority over you know it was supposed to be a spiritual um theocracy but really at the time of christ the jews were not operating any differently really from the way the gentiles operated think about the jews the sanhedrin the chief priests and the scribes and the pharisees and all those sadducees the rest of them how were, what, how were they acting? They were exercising their lordship over the common people, weren't they? So they were a- acting just like the Gentiles, really. Uh, and they, but they shouldn't have been. And now the word accounted is very interesting. The word accounted, you see where it says, they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles. The Lord here is saying that um, the rule of the Gentiles is only apparent. They are only accounted to be the rulers by themselves and by the people they rule over. When who is really the ruler, even over the supposed accounted rulers? The Lord God. He is the one who is sovereignly on his throne, orchestrating all those who rule down on earth. He is the one who sets up kings and sets up presidents and takes down kings and takes down presidents. He is the rule. They're only accounted to be the rulers. That's a very interesting word there. And he, uh, he says they, they like to lo- exercise lordship, which literally means lord it down on people. And it speaks of those who use their positions for their own personal ambition, their own personal advantage, and they oppress their subjects. Those of the world seek their greatness, through power as history has shown time and time again with all of its supposed great ones. You notice how he says they're great ones. Who were some of the world's great ones? Great ones in whose eyes? Their own eyes and the world's eyes, but not great ones in God's eyes. People like the Pharaohs of Egypt and um, Nebuchadnezzar of uh, Babylon and uh, Darius the Mede and Alexander the great. A lot of these guys called themselves the great, didn't they? Antiochus Epiphanes, he was, um, I forget what that means, but he was basically calling himself God. And uh, the Roman Caesars who made people worship them even, and all, uh, all of the Napoleons and the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Saddam Husseins that this world has ever seen. The world's system of things is that authority and grandeur and pomp and splendor and who gets to sit where and who gets the chief appointments in the cabinet and in government. The world's perspective is that these are the things that matter. The world's attitude is that the higher you get, the more you can be served by those under you. The world's system is like a pyramid where the one who is the big mucky muck is at the top of the pyramid. And, you know, all the subservients are under him and they all cater to him and serve him. That's the world's way. But he said something that they already knew, but so shall it not be among you. It's not supposed to be that way. Among my followers... That's not the way God's people are to do things. Rather, whosoever is great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. In God's economy, you see, the higher up you get, the more you serve and sacrifice for others. If you want a position in God's kingdom, you better be willing to serve others, and you better be willing to sacrifice and say, Bye-bye, life. But in giving up your life, you gain it, don't you? Now, what is the Lord's true view of greatness? Well, number one, it is not exercising lordship and authority over people and desiring the chief positions. It is not self-centered and it is not selfish. In fact, you need to die totally to self. It's not worldly minded. The true greatness comes by focusing on Christ and obedience to him by serving others true greatness seeks to minister not to be ministered unto and as i said that word minister comes from the akonos which literally means one who serves a minister a deacon a server is one who looks for ways to help other people the, and the truly greatest they call it the chiefest i like that word don't you the chiefest are those who are the servants of all they genuinely have a servant attitude. It isn't just put on. It's there. It truly is there. Um, so the Lord is making a distinction here. The great are those who minister, but the chiefest of the great are those who are bond slave servants. The idea of ministering, you see, is an occasional service. Whereas a bond slave is a person who is bound to service every single moment of his life. Regardless of disruption, regardless of the difficulty in doing so. And some of you, I think about some of you and I, I go, wow, they are the chiefest. Because you really have the hearts of bond slaves. You're there every time somebody needs something. And that just always puts me to shame and guilt when I think, hmm. Anyway. And who is our example to follow in all of this? As always in everything. The Lord Jesus who although he is the creator of the entire universe. Of which man. If you think about how puny we are. We are like a microbe on a speck of sand. Floating through what seems to be infinite space. They can't ever get to the end of space. Because it was made by an infinite god and so it is infinite but we're like a microbe on a speck of sand floating through infinite space we're like a vapor we're here today gone tomorrow maybe 70 years average and yet the creator god who made all this created all of it willingly took upon himself the likeness of man of one of us little microbes And he became a member of the race of humanity, which was the very most humiliating act imaginable because even the animals don't have sin. But he willingly became one of us, you know, who... Of course, he was without sin. But I got to thinking about the animals treat each other of their own kind better than people do. People are always killing each other. Why? Why? Why does so many... I mean, right as we speak, people are murdering one another and blowing each other up and all the atrocities that they do to one another. But you don't see that among the animal kingdom. I mean, polar bears aren't constantly spitting on one another and and crucifying one another and killing one another. Are they? They're not. I mean, the males might fight once in a while, but they're not. It's really, it was humiliating to become a man. And he did it not so that he could lord it over us. And could he have lorded it over us? absolutely being who he is and omniscient omnipresent omnipotent all-powerful never not having sin he could still be he wouldn't die he could still be being ministered unto and served as king of kings and lord of lords he didn't have to come down here and become a servant and give his life i like that word give because it's true see he gave his life a ransom for many what does that tell us It was totally voluntary. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. He gave his life a ransom for many. His ministry, you see, would end in his death as the highest point of his servanthood. His ministry would end in his death, and his death was his highest point of servanthood. Now, the world, when the world looked at the cross on Calvary, the world saw absolutely no greatness in that. I mean, if anything, it was a, it was a shameful thing. He, he was mocked, he was, he was scorned, he was put to open shame hanging there before everyone to look upon him. And the world looked at that and they saw it as weakness. But no greater work has ever, ever been done than Christ's work on the cross at Calvary. You see, the higher the position, the greater the sacrifice. And there was never a greater sacrifice and there's never been a greater position. He was exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Now, a ransom is something that is paid to set loose something. It is the price he paid to affect the release of prisoners or captives. And are we, were we captives? Were we prisoners? All men, all men are captives and prisoners to, to sin and to death. And uh, we are completely unable to free ourselves. But his life, given in exchange as a substitutionary ransom for our sins, can set us free. How many of you have been set free? I hope everybody can raise their hand. Do you think James and John were set free? And Salome was set free? Absolutely they were. He gave his life a ransom for many. And actually, he gave his life a ransom for all. And you can see that in 1 Timothy 2.6. It says all. He didn't just die for the elect. He died for all. Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time we've had together thank you that jesus christ did indeed come to seek and to save that which was lost and that he did give himself a ransom for all i pray father that each of us here who desires to please you that we would be careful to watch and pray daily against self-esteem and pride and and having overconfidence and 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 even feeling having those little feelings of, of envy or jealousy that can arise within us when when a brother or a sister has been more honored than ourselves. May we always remember the words of the scripture where we do we we do nothing to be um, nothing in strife or vainglory, but always in lowliness of mind that we esteem others better than ourselves. And, Father, let us never forget that true greatness consists in devoting ourselves to the blessed work of serving and ministering to our fellow man, that they may be more holy and, consequently, that they might be more happy. I pray, Lord, that we would strive to leave those in this world around us better, that they would be holier and happier than they would have been without us, because this is a life that brings its own rewards. And, Father, thank you that Jesus is always our example in everything, most of all in having the attitude of a servant. Even though you are King of kings and Lord of lords, yet you willingly drank the cup of suffering to its bitter dregs, and you endured the baptism of unimaginable suffering so as to make a full and a complete ransom for our countless transgressions and we can never thank you and praise you enough for that truth now we just pray your blessing upon every lady here this morning lord watch over her protect her this week and use her as your servant and your minister this week for we do pray in jesus name Amen.